The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. When I started to write this, I was thinking a lot about the changing demographics. It's already started to upset the power structure. Power is never given up without a fight. And so what I did was create a timeline 30 years into the future, very much thinking about the way far right movements rise in history. Indigenous people are in a unique position to offer a warning to say, we have been here. We know what this is because white supremacy is a threat to undermine all of us and the values that we uphold. Hi, Dennis Gule Nitsinigason, Nainai Apitago San Nina, Mistai Sage Gun Saskatchewan Oche, and I am a modern minority. Welcome to Modern Minorities. This is the show about work and life, told through the lens of what makes each of us different. I'm Sharon Lee Tony, a Chinese American girl born and raised in New York City. And I'm Roman Segal, an Indian American boy who came from Alabama with a banjo on my knee. Through conversations with some really interesting people, we uncover the stories, perspectives, and often unspoken truths about how our guests uniquely experience the world. It doesn't matter where you're from, the color of your skin, or who you love. We're all minorities somehow, but we're no one's model minority. This is a show about all of you, for all of us. On today's show, we're speaking with award-winning Indigenous filmmaker Dana Goulet, whose latest film, Night Raiders, is in theaters and on demand now. Night Raiders is a not-so-far future dystopic fiction starring Ellie Maisha, Tailfeathers, and Brooklyn Latexia Hart as a mother and daughter making their way through the aftermath of a modern-day civil war where all the children are being taken by the state. Night Raiders is actually Dennis's first feature film, which she wrote and directed, and it's an allegory for the residential school systems from the 20th century, where North American governments, both Canada and the U.S., pulled away hundreds of thousands of indigenous children from their parents and dispersed them amongst various Christian boarding schools around the country, cutting all ties with their heritage. This actually recently gave rise to the Idle No More movement in Canada. Full stop, this is about modern-day colonization of cultures. Night Raiders was actually executive produced by Taika Watiti, another rising indigenous filmmaker who needs no introduction. And Danis herself is Cree Matisse. Uh, she was born in Lorong, Saskatchewan, and she actually now resides in Toronto. Danis's films have screened at festivals around the world, including Sundance, the Toronto International Film Festival, the Berlin International Film Festival, as well as the Imaginative Festival, the last of which Danis is actively involved. And Geez, Sharon. I mean, look, from the opening narration of Night Raiders, which you and I had the opportunity to screen, you feel like you're walking into a small slice of a much bigger story. And I'm such a fan of science fiction, not just because of like laser guns and lightsabers, but because of the subversive qualities to kind of make real world points. Uh, I don't know. <laughs> what do you think of the movie? Yeah. What do you think about our conversation with Danis? I love the movie and I'm not a sci-fi fan at all. I'm very opposite from you. And what I loved about the movie was that even though, I'm going to say even though it was science fiction, it 
was so raw and so real. And it showed the relationship between a mother and a daughter. And it really hit home for any of us that are from immigrant communities or have ever experienced anything that would require us to maybe question our own beliefs or make really difficult decisions about cultural ties. And I think she she just, she told this story so poignantly. Like there were moments in the film that made me stop and really reflect upon how I see the world, but also how I was either being raised in certain systems and also the world that we're creating for our children today. And it, it's a beautifully told story and it's, it's got such a point of view about what's happened. It felt very relevant to the things that we are experiencing today here in the US and, and globally with how we're relating to each other, as well as like the role of government and some of the decisions that are being made. Yeah. I mean, I don't know if it's this podcast that we do or us being parents or, you know, raising minority kids or coming from underrepresented backgrounds. Um, this, this movie beyond just being a good film, it just like hit me really hard emotionally yeah. and psychologically. And it was just so much fun to unpack that and the motivations with the statement that Dennis was trying to make. And she's just a really cool nerdy she's awesome. creator. <laughs> she's a badass. She's a total badass. Kind of like the main character, Nissa. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And so we know you're going to love our conversation with Dennis, but also please take the, the time to find Night Raider either in a local theater or on streaming. And we're pretty sure you're going to love it as much as we did. Dennis, welcome to the pod. It's so great to have you here. Can say hello. Thanks for hello, having me. Hello. It's so great to have you. Dennis, you have a movie out and we watched it <laughs> and we totally want to geek out on this film. I should it's a capital F film. It's not a movie in my opinion. But I guess before we get into that, I, I think what we all really want to know is uh where are you from? Yeah, I'll introduce myself properly, which is Dennis Goulet Nitsinigason. And so what I just said in Cree is, hello, my name is Danis Goulet. I'm originally from LaRange in northern Saskatchewan, and I'm Cree Métis. So Saskatchewan is in the Midwest of Canada. It's above North Dakota. And in the south of the province is the plains, and in the north is the boreal forest and lakes, which is where I'm originally from. And yeah, I grew up in northern Saskatchewan and later in southern Saskatchewan. And then I eventually made my way out to Toronto because I had film ambitions and Toronto is the real film center of Canada. I have to tell you, that's the best introduction we've ever gotten. We usually get oh things like, yeah, <laughs> awesome. Like, usually we get, oh, I'm from Toronto, Canada. And then we have to probe like, well, where are you really from? But you just went right to the heart of the answer. So <laughs> I want to ask, are you, because we, we saw each other on the Zoom right before we started recording, you're white passing. I've, I've learned that term yeah. now in the past year of mm -hmm. all these conversations. Do people ever catch on that you're indigenous or is that like a secret or is it something like you wear, wear on your sleeve? Or yeah, it's something that I wear on my sleeve. So I'm mixed. My mom yep. is non-Indigenous and my dad is Indigenous. So he's Cree and he speaks Cree as his first yeah. language. Yeah. And because we were also raised in a Cree community um, in northern Saskatchewan, it's like I grew up in the cultural context and around the language. And also my dad grew up hunting and trapping in a mm. very traditional lifestyle because he's from a remote community that actually didn't have 
road access as he was growing up as a kid. So he would go on the trap line every year. So the amount of change that's happened in one generation is profound. But I also grew up in, I would say, a very racially charged area of Canada. Hmm. The prairies has a unique cultural context where it has a higher Indigenous population. But when I was growing up, it wasn't that diverse. So it was sort of like white and native. And I was obviously white passing. And so I sort of moved in those worlds, but it was, the place has a lot of tension, but on the surface, everyone's really friendly, but I've always identified with my Cree Métis side because that's always how I was known in my community. And also because my dad had such a profound influence on our family, but was also recognized as a community leader. And so publicly it was known who I was, but I think it's Mm. also a choice to really step forward into your identity when you are white passing and declare who you are. And that's especially important to me as an Indigenous person, because colonization is an attempt to eradicate us on our own land. And so if we are white passing, to me, it's incumbent upon us to declare who we are and what our values are loudly. Have you ever encountered any situations where there's been tension around that at all? Tension around being white passing specifically? Well, you talked about the tension in the community. It was under the surface. Did it ever like boil over? Oh, yeah. It wasn't under the surface at all. It was an overtly (laughs) racist place to grow up. So okay. The, the like the racism towards native people on the prairies mm. can be violent. I mean, mm. there was a woman murdered when I was in high school and she was murdered by a white kid who was dating somebody in my circle of friends. So it's like it was wow. very present when I grew up in Saskatchewan. And my dad was a public person. He was actually a politician. And he faced overt public racism, especially for speaking Cree in the legislature, which was the first time that that had happened. And he would often speak to his constituents in his original language. And he was told to stop doing that and told that he sounded like a fool. And uh, so yeah, really overt racism. But because I was white passing, there also comes a certain privilege where it isn't often directed directly at me. And so Mm -hmm. there were moments where I would have to step in or choose to say something if sometimes I was observing something. Did you ever hear things like, well, you're not like the rest of them or things like that? Or, oh, but we weren't talking about you. Dennis. Yeah, I and it was weird because we had a lot of friends in our friend group where it was like some were indigenous, some weren't and and you got this sense of that there was like a spectrum of who was acceptable and who wasn't and that that acceptability seemed to have an association with proximity to whiteness. So whether or not you could operate in a white-coded way or maybe you were white passing, but something I've thought a lot about especially in the northern community that I was from, which was also a town that was sort of like 50% white and 50% indigenous. And the white kids seemed to have more status. They seemed to come from families that were connected to the industry in the town. And then there were like some indigenous kids that had some status and 
some mixed race kids that like me that also had status or or to like a certain degree. Mm -hmm. And then there were the kids that were maybe lived on the res or they went on the trap line. Like I remember there was a girl in my grade one class that went on the trap line every year. So she would leave with her family and go out on the land for what does that mean? Sorry, what does that mean? What's the trap line? It means that you if your family has a traditional hunting territory and trapping territory that the hunting season is from sort of like March to May. And Uh so you go out to your family's traditional territory, you live on the land, like in a tent for two months, and you harvest off the land. And so that way of life, which is like very much disappearing, people don't do that as much anymore. But even when I was growing up in as a kid, like my dad's generation did it. So that's what he would do. He would leave school every year for two months and go on the trap line, which means going to harvest animals in your family's Mm -hmm. traditional territory. And then when I was in grade one, there was a girl in my class that did that, but like I wasn't doing it anymore. And then there were a lot of kids, but I remember thinking that those kids were sort of othered the most. And because they disappeared from two months and everyone's like, they're off doing the weird indigenous thing. Right. Yeah. Yeah, They're they're like out in the bush or whatever, even though we were all living in a town in the bush. Yeah. (laughs) It was like, but there was a spectrum and I don't think I reflect upon that or understood that or how to navigate it. And I certainly wasn't able to understand that status came with proximity to whiteness until I was an adult. Interesting. So as someone who sort of was in the middle of the spectrum, did you feel as if you had to try to fit into one end or the other? Or was the middle enough? Like, were there enough in the middle, enough people in that middle for you to feel like you had a little crew or a little, a little hive of people? Yeah. By the time I was in high school, I definitely had a hive of people and it was a mix of people. And in fact, my best friend growing up was also mixed race and she was half Nigerian. And so she was biracial. And so we were sort of like two little peas in a pod as like two mixed race kids on the prairies. And her specific situation was quite different because it was still really rare. Like black folks were definitely more rare than indigenous folks. And so her experience, and because she was visible, it was like we were connected, but then also had different experiences at the same time. Yeah. What did you want to be when you grew up? I wanted to be possibly a scientist or maybe a politician because we were in a political family and that was I was really excited by that and we would go through the rounds of like the political like every four years the election cycles and I found it all of it really exciting but I also was drawn to science and and actually like aerospace at a certain point. So I went to a science camp when I was in grade 11. And then I also got accepted into the UBC, which is in Vancouver, their science program. And instead of accepting that spot, I went traveling. And then when I came back from traveling, I fluked onto a film set and ended up finding myself in film. And it was like the answer to everything was suddenly yeah. in front of me. <laughs> How did I, I got to ask those, what did mom and dad want you to be? And then how did mom and dad feel when you became film obsessed? <laughs> I think they supported it at first. They thought it was exciting, but they definitely wanted me to go to university No question. So my Mm. rejection Mm -hmm. of that was probably sent the biggest ripple through 
our family, both of my parents are academics. So my mm. dad begun before he was a politician as an educator. My mom worked in education and both of them were really involved in the community through education. They both have PhDs now. So they were both academics and that was their world and their sphere. And so there was no way that they were going to have two daughters that didn't go to university. And to me, that was the unspoken path. It's like, right. oh, you've gone off backpacking, fine, like go do your thing. But as soon as you get back, you're going to university. And right. then as soon as I got back, I caught the film bug. And then I thought I could study film, but I'm already working in it and learning so much. It felt like strange to take four years off and do mm -hmm. that. So I just kept working in film and working my way up. And uh, I think it was just hard initially making the choice to not go to university, but they were very supportive of what I did end up choosing to do. And I think because they saw the opportunities that opened up for me, they were supportive of it. When I eventually moved out to Toronto, I was working in casting. And then I had this moment in a casting room where I was casting this big US, or I was on the team that was casting a big US television pilot. And it opened with an Indigenous woman stepping out in front of a waterfall, saying nothing, and then sacrificing herself over it. Wow. And it was this very like Indian princess Pocahontas archetype. Mm -hmm. So I was new to Toronto, and I was calling into the room all of these really incredible actresses that I looked up to and like thought they were incredible. And one by one, I saw each of them come into the room, be silenced, and then die over and over again, because it was an audition. And mm -hmm. I remember the feeling of shame, and of sinking into my chair and realizing that I was a part of the team that was perpetuated, like I didn't write it. And I wasn't gonna yeah, wasn't yeah. in that way. But it was like, I felt like I was complicit in something that needed to change. And so it was like a penny drop moment for me. Because at first, I thought I'd just work in film and work in casting. And then that moment just was like a, a wake up moment where I just thought we have to tell our own stories, we have to be behind them. And I was looking around going like, who's going to do that? And where do I find these people? And so yeah. I got, yeah. at that time, I got involved with the Imaginative Film and Media Arts Festival, which is now regarded as the largest Indigenous festival in the world. And we're so lucky to have that hub in Toronto. But I joined the programming committee, and then I eventually became director of the festival. And it brought me into this world of creators that were driven by this mission to have Indigenous people in key creative roles. And suddenly, it's like I found my people. So that was incredible. That's great. And Remen and I have both watched Night Raiders. And I have to say, within the first five minutes of the film, I literally hit pause and I thought, was this from a book? Like it, it was your work is so poignant and so amazing. And before we get into the storyline or anything else, I'm just curious, like what inspired it? What made you decide to write such a, just you created a fantastical world. And I was shocked to, to know that it was something that you had created on your own. Like I, I honestly saw it and I thought, this has got to be like from a series or something like it was just so robust the way you've told these stories. Oh, thank you so much. I spent a lot of time writing. But also, <laughs> for me, all of my work looks at the impact of colonization on Indigenous life and families. And so when it came to making my first feature, 
I knew I wanted to continue to talk about that. And one of the largest sort of colonial laws that's had the hugest impact up here in Canada, and then this is also starting to be a conversation in the U.S. as Mm -hmm. well, is the residential school system Mm -hmm. because it was a system that was enforced by law and it was a child removal policy enforced by law for seven generations of Indigenous families. Mm -hmm. And the last one in Canada only closed in 1996. So this is very present in Indigenous communities and families and lives. And so I wanted to talk about that and and also the mother-daughter relationship to me, which was so fundamental. Mm -hmm. And then at the time, I had also just made my very first sci-fi short film. And up to that point, I'd made all kind of serious dramas. And moving into the sci-fi space, it became a different container to talk about the things that I wanted to talk about that I felt was more artistically free. It's like I could really hit things as hard as I wanted to. You're protected by fiction. You can create whatever conditions you want in order to express, like to me, what I wanted to express is just how oppressive these policies were and what it must have been like to live under them. And then also talk about the fact that Indigenous people are still living under them. And so there was something about the near future and the genre that just opened up creative possibilities that were so freeing. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I've gone on record, like, I'm such a fan of the medium of science fiction, not just because of the cool factor. I mean, that helps. But the subversive qualities that you can make real world points, you can be like, Oh, we're not talking about genocide or colonization, mass audiences, they're robots and drones. But By the time the person's consumed the story, there's this oh shit moment. And some of the choices you made, it's that there's like a moment where it's the kids have been taken, the the government is taking the kids, what's going on? And it's this not too distant Elysium DMZ vibe of we're in the aftermath of something terrible happening. But there's like this moment where they come into the city and Niska comes into the city with her daughter and they run into a black family. And it's almost like, Yes, I am telling an indigenous story through an indigenous lens, and that becomes more apparent. But this thing, this shit that is just over the horizon that I am commenting on, or this thing that has happened in the past, it could happen to all of us. Right. Wake up and and like, I just, there were so many like punch in the gut moments that that drew you in because to your point, it, it is fiction, it is in the near future, but it's. I mean, you wrote this in a pretty dark time in our society. I mean, the past two years have been no. Uh, cakewalk uh, again relative to the last seven generations i would say it's easy but was there a commentary on something you think could happen yeah i think a lot of dystopian fiction exists as a warning in some way and when i started to write this i was thinking a lot about the changing demographics in the u.s mm-hmm. that I, ca- I can't remember what year it is but it's in the near future that the amount of non-white babies born in the u.s will outnumber white babies and that changing demographic to me was just something that I was thinking about at the time and what it means for our future. And to me, it meant that it's going to upset and it already has started to upset a power balance and the power uh, or the our power structure. Power is never given up without a fight if we look back in history. And also, I wanted to pointedly talk about white supremacy 
because I think there was some time where we stopped talking about white supremacy as something that is about the KKK and the history. But, but it's over. We had Hitler. a black president. Aren't we good? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and that's a great point, because the other thing that I was thinking is there was a black president. And what does that mean? That means yeah. there's going to be a white backlash coming uh-huh, because uh-huh. that does also not happen like that is going to be received as a threat. And so in my thinking, what I did was create a timeline where I tracked the U.S. elections every four years going 30 years into the future, and then what happened in those elections, and then what the fallout was, and then what eventually led to the far-right white supremacist uprising, which was the white backlash, which then led to a North America-wide civil war. And so when we pick up the story, this is in the post-war period, but it was very much thinking about the way that white supremacy and far right movements rise in history and what are the conditions that make that ripe to happen. And then the indigenous context is colonization has already happened to us. So I think you see a lot of science fiction Mm -hmm. movies where it's Mm -hmm. anxieties about being colonized. That's already happened. So Indigenous people are in a unique position to offer a warning to say, we have been here. We know what this is. And the movie starts like that. The elder says, we always knew they would come for us. And we tried to warn the others that they were going to come for them, too. Because Mm -hmm. white supremacy, obviously, is not just a threat to Indigenous people. It is a threat to undermine all of us and the values that we uphold if we uphold certain values. I want to talk about the indigenous lens because it's very used in this film. Obviously, it's not just about telling the historical story, but projecting in the future. And it's just so many questions about this. I mean, the the film itself, right? It's it's so intimate. It's the the photography, the shots, the darkness, the the constant movement. Is that just your style, or was that a metaphor for the nature of these like closely knit indigenous communities? It has been my style for my last three films, and I've worked with the same DOP over those three films. So we sort of discovered something together in a film we made a few films back and then Mm -hmm. kept building on that. But I think every story asks for a certain visual language. But the Mm -hmm. reason why I felt it was so important to stick with that visual language is first off to create that closeness to the characters and to the intimacy, but also a close camera that is relentlessly moving feels Mm -hmm. claustrophobic. And I think there's something about the oppression of the world. I was uncomfortable. I mean, yeah. yeah. And And also that you can't catch a breath. There's something really... As soon as there's space, you feel that visually, and it gives you a moment to relax. And the characters get no relief in the world that they live in. Mm -hmm. And so it's just sort of relentless. And the camera's also relentlessly moving. It never rests. And there's one moment in a camp where Niska's walking through the camp. And and at this point, the camera's also moving slower. Mm -hmm. And she just looks up into the light of the trees. And I think it's the first time we see a character actually open themselves up to the sky even because it's never it's not safe in this world to do that so yeah that that was all behind the choices for the cinematography what about i mean so obviously you have indigenous heritage you were the writer and the director and the cast told the story but something i started to read after i watched the film was you had a indigenous crew involved were there things or moments that were possible that having 
your people involved in all elements of the production, things that, that were allowed or stories. You, I think I read somewhere you were a culturally conscientious shoot. What, what does that mean? <laughs> what did that result in? When you think about what is an Indigenous film, and in my opinion, it is driven by Indigenous vision. So whatever mm. that looks like. And to me, going back to the development of my film, I sit around at the kitchen table with my dad because he speaks Cree as a first language. And mm -hmm. we talk about concepts. And so, for example, the drones in the world, in the Cree language, there's the way the language breaks down notions of animate and inanimate, although it's a more complex system than just that binary. But in the language, the rocks are referred to as animate. And so I was thinking a lot about what would it mean from an indigenous perspective if rocks are animate, then maybe the things that that make it like the drones, for example, which are built out of rocks and minerals might also be regarded in that way. Yeah, it's kind of like the force. Yeah, <laughs> it's like a super cool subversion of the sci-fi trope of like, as soon as AI becomes conscious, it's going to kill us. In this perspective, which is very much informed by by the structure of the Cree language itself, it's say it's like positing a different possibility and a different question that comes from the Cree idea that rocks are animate. So conceptually, there's super cool things that I work with in development. Because I'm a non-Cree speaker, I just try to weave it in in the ways that I'm able to. And then obviously, there's the presence of language on screen. And so I think first and foremost, you think of representation and how you represent the people, but also the the language itself, which is so beautiful to work in and so poetic. And the language contains whole universes and worldviews. And I think just even the presence of it, it on screen opens up something unique. But the crew element, and also I think there's an education piece as well. So when we started shooting, we had a half-day mandatory training for the crew, which was like a colonization 101 talk about the policies that were inflicted upon Indigenous people, the residential school system, the Indian Act, all of these things. And it was just like, it was the day before shooting. So it's a big ask for your crew to stop working and listen to like a piece of education. But it was super important because to me, of course, a film set is a workplace, but we always thought of ourselves as a values-driven project. And I just mm. could see that in the crew, there were like light bulbs going off that suddenly, because all of them had read the script, it's like, oh, this is why we're telling this story. And that they could be brought into that in some way. We're just saying this is the context in which we're making this movie. And then we had elders open the movie in the right way and acknowledge the land that we're on. We had elders as a part of the film itself, but also cultural practices available to the actors which were really important to protect them emotionally, spiritually. And so smudging is a practice, for example, where it's a cleansing practice where you burn sage or sweet grass. And mm -hmm. there were really difficult scenes that we were moving through and where we needed that as a part of the process. And so one day we put a call out for a smudge on set and it was because Indigenous crew were actually on our set that we were able to make that available to the actors. And then also just that idea that nobody wants to be alone. And when I got into film, I was really involved as an advocate pushing for more support for Indigenous storytellers, because 
I had seen in Canada the huge success of this one film called Atanarjuat the Fast Runner by Zacharias Kunuk. It went to Cannes in, I think, 2001, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. won the camera door. And for us as Indigenous people, we were like, wow, we're so proud. And we thought it would change everything, that it would open the floodgates for yeah. Indigenous storytelling. And it was like crickets afterwards. And there was no wave. There was no anything. And it should have proven something was possible. It should have said to Canada, look, support these stories and it's good for everybody. They're going to put you on the map at international festivals. So as I was making my short films, I was also involved in pushing for things to be created for I wrote Mm -hmm, a report mm -hmm. about the lack of feature film production in Canada. So it's like, you also have to be an advocate as you're going through this process of creation. But the process of making the film as well, you have to signal to everybody that this is an Indigenous set that values culture as a part of what we do. I I think about and I'm sorry to invoke Blockbuster, but the Shang-Chi or the Black Panther effect, is it you need the tentpole? Is it you need the sci-fi to subversively say there's other things going on? I mean, say what you will about Shang-Chi, but the, the production, like all the way in, was an Asian production. Like there are so many nuances that tell those stories in there. Is that what's necessary to break the like white savior dances with wolves tropes, the avatar tropes? Like, yeah. oh, avatar. <laughs> do we need to get Kevin Feige to hire you to make something? <laughs> well, I don't. I, good question, and I'm sure that that's in the near future at the Marvels of the world and sure. the studios. I guess it's just when I came into this incredible indigenous film community, mm. I think there was a whole bunch of us holding a vision. And I wanted to, in this vision of my world, there should be room for all sorts of artists to do all kinds of things at whatever scale was appealing to them. To me, it was the freedom of what any other filmmaker has the freedom to do, which is if you want to go off and become like an art house superstar that it can, or an experimental filmmaker, or absolutely the Marvel tentpole studio movies. And I think all of these are different vehicles. I think probably in the studio system, it might mean that you have to compromise more or like, I don't, what I mean, there's always that tension of like the more money involved, the more people involved, there's a compromise, which doesn't mean that you can't push progress forward in that vehicle, because we are seeing that happen at Marvel. It's just sort of like, if are you the creative person that is able to say, okay, this compromise for me is going to be worth the positive outcomes. And I guess that's a question everyone has to ask themselves. Yeah, it's, I mean, Mark Ruffalo has famously said, he's like, I make the Marvel movies so I can go make the other movies, right? Like, uh, oh, yeah. And so, again, just I hate to like dwell in like comic book land, but like Taika Waititi, he is goes without saying he went and made a bunch of quirky, really interesting films, right, about New Zealand and that life and that culture, partially with his indigenous lens. He's attached to stories on Hulu about reservation dogs with the indigenous lens. Is that what was I mean, I saw he's an executive producer of this movie and we've spoken to producers. There's producers and there's executive producers and what those two things mean. But like. What was his role? What was his involvement? What was his interest? Because there is a guy with a Kiwi accent in the film. (laughs) Where did Taika come into it? And what's his perspective on this? 
Well, I think we had a dream to create some international Indigenous co-production, and we ended mm-hmm. up being the very first one be- mm-hmm. between Canada and New Zealand mm-hmm. in, in, that was structured in this way, and definitely the first Indigenous co-production. And I just wanted to reflect how amazingly interconnected the global Indigenous community is. And I had experienced that through the film community and through my involvement at Imaginative, because when I was director of the festival, that's when I met all of these amazing upcoming filmmakers Mm. like Taika. So I had a short at Sundance and met Taika in 2004. I think I met Sterling Harjo in 2005. I met Sydney Freeland maybe the next year. And so Sundance was certainly a place that was a home for that. But Imaginative was also a home for that. And then there were other later, the Berlin Film Festival started to create Mm -hmm, this mm -hmm, native mm -hmm. sidebar. And so then we'd go meet up over there or at the Sami Film Festivals in Northern Europe. And so there's been this amazingly interconnected global Indigenous film community that I just wanted to celebrate, which is why I had this Mari character who comes into Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. the space and is there in solidarity, because you also see that global interconnectivity in the activist communities as well. Well, And he's literally, here's how I can help. I got the passport. I can get us to move around. Yeah. Exactly. So he's there doing what he can because he has a, a privilege that he can then use for the fight, which I, was just super cool. And so I actually showed it first to a New Zealand screenwriter friend of mine, Briar Grace Smith, who was an incredible support very early on and said, does this make sense story-wise? And she said, yes, she thought it did and was really supportive. And so from there, at a certain point, as it started to develop and we got closer to going for funding, I just went to Taika and said, hey, would you consider being an EP? Because your name attached to our film is going to open amazing doors for us. Yeah, and yeah. it did. So he read it and was like, whatever I can do to support. Wow. And he was on board as an EP. And Taika did that for Reservation Dogs with his involvement with Sterling. Yeah. And yeah. he's done that on other Indigenous films as well. And so it's really super cool that he supports the indigenous community that he has been a part of for a really long time. That's so cool. So one thing that really spoke to me in the film was the mother-daughter relationship, but something that stood out as well is the prominence of the female characters that pepper through the story. And and part of it is, I think, as someone who isn't part of the culture, when I think of indigenous tribes and families, I think of the elders being male, I think of a very heavy male presence. And that probably just comes from really like my, I don't know if it's like Disney or Pocahontas or tropes or like, and you did such a nice job of putting the women at the center of the story, but also at the forefront of all of the critical decisions and just all of the, the, the touch points that really drove everything that was happening. Can you talk a little bit more about that decision and what inspired it and how that character development worked as you were working through the storyline? Yeah, I think the resiliency of Indigenous women and how badass they are and how strong they are has been like such an inspiration to me personally. And I've seen it in when I started writing this, there was um, a protest movement sweeping Canada that I felt very moved by called Idle No More. Mm -hmm, And there was mm -hmm. a whole bunch of folks that were doing round dances, which is a circular dance in malls at the height of the Christmas shopping season. And Mm -hmm. it was like, I was glued to the live feeds. And I remember watching the one 
at the mall that I grew up going to in Saskatchewan. And to see people standing up in that space was so beautifully inspiring and the youth especially. But that movement was started by four women on the prairies. And Mm. I think women have always had an incredibly intrinsic role in activist movements, but they often are overlooked. And I've also been so inspired by the women in the film community that I'd grown up with. Like I had been a part of different collectives. And for some reason in the Indigenous community, women directors a lot of times outnumber men. So it's like not like one year at Imaginative, I was in Berlin and they were on a panel and everyone was talking about trying to get to parody and Imaginative was like, oh, our submissions this year are 70% women directed. And I don't know why that is, but women play a leadership role as storytellers. At least I can speak to that in the film sector. And so this is something to celebrate. Like it is something to show the beauty and the strength of, and also to show the different ways in which it manifests. So Mm -hmm. the young leader, Sumanis, who at the very end has to go up on the lines. I wanted to play against the warrior trope type. So it's like she is a soft-spoken, gentle, beautiful, but very like has an incredible presence as a person. And it's those kind of people in my communities that I've seen rise up as leaders, but their leadership doesn't look in the expected, it it expresses itself in a different way. And I just felt like that was so important to show the different ways that women are strong and incredible and to show that through all of the different characters in the story. I love it. I really love it. I just found myself so inspired and, and 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 also so surprised at moments, even from like literally like the first five minutes of watching Niska take that gun and just shoot down that drone. I was like, what? Like, who is this person? Yeah. <laughs> and where is she? And why? Like, like so many questions. And yet at the same time thinking, yeah, like she can really kick ass and yet at the same time be so loving and so generous and so soft in those ways. And I think you did, you just did such a fantastic job with portraying them. Well, I think also when our communities where our children, Indigenous families had their children taken Mm. from them. And I think you see so many Indigenous women that have had to survive in different ways. And there are so many women back home that are tough as nails. It's like, you don't mess with these women. And especially Mm -hmm. when it comes to their kids. And Niska is the fiercest protector of Wasis. And yet she has this raw vulnerability that comes on screen at other times and you just see how much that fierce shell is coming so directly from a place of love and to me everything in the film always comes back to love and if you look at even indigenous resistance to me that's always circling around love for our communities and the protection of our language and cultures yeah and it's you know, one of those moments is when she has to make the choice to abandon her daughter and she just breaks down. She turns oh the God. corner, ducks into an ally. But the other thing that hit me hard, and again, again, things hit you harder, I think, when you're a parent. Oh, <laughs> are yeah. you? Wait, are you a parent, Dennis? I am. Okay, because okay. like, there's just these moments in these, I don't want to call them heartstring moments. Yeah, you captured those moments so well. Well, it's... So, so well. I hate to bring it to a dark moment in the film, and, and there is there's a hopeful lining to it, but when Niska makes it to rescue her daughter, and her daughter is angry at her, 
Like you, mm-hmm. you abandoned mm-hmm. me. Like, yeah. And I've had those looks from my daughter. Like, where were you? Why did you make me go through that? How dare you? Yeah. And the the explanation and the justification that just doesn't work. But come on, we got to go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I think part of the moments that inspired that film was listening to the Truth and Reconciliation mm-hmm. Commission mm-hmm. testimony, mm-hmm. where they went through a whole process across Canada where people spoke publicly about yeah. their experiences. And one moment that always stayed with me is when a father stood up in a room full of people and he was crying and he was apologizing to his children for not being the parent that he should have been because he Mm. was a residential school survivor and Mm. was not taught the skills to do that and to me there was a specific devastation where you are forced into a situation that is imposed upon you but that is so effective because it then causes internal shame that somehow it was a personal failing and I think when Niska walks into that room she is terrified because her choice to give up Wasis is seen to her and to Wasis in that moment as a personal failing instead of something that was opposed systemically on both of them. Mm-hmm. And so Niska is in the room terrified that in fact if she could be rejected and then lose Wasis. Well, all I was over so again, scared in that moment. Is, like yeah, yeah, it's terrifying. That would be the worst. And that was also part of her. There's a moment in the camp. Can we talk about the Pledge of Allegiance? Because yeah. what oh, the yeah. hell? Because yeah. my daughter's learning the Pledge of Allegiance right now. And as an American who was raised with it and in your 20s and 30s, like, wait, what, what were those words that I was saying? Right. <laughs> like, right. Talk to me about that choice, please. I think I lifted the one country, one language, <laughs> one flag from an early American pledge. Like, I can't remember. I was on yeah. the internet doing something. Yeah. And when you actually read these things, these like patriotic declarations, they sound totally crazy. And then it's like, it's like oh, we, it's yeah. And then we, we don't realize that we do these. I mean, I would say Canada is a far less patriotic country than America, <laughs> but I did live uh, for a small time in LA. I did a few months and I remember I was standing in a schoolyard and they started to do the Pledge of Allegiance, which we don't do in Canada, although we do sing right. our national anthem every morning. And even the construction workers in the yard just stopped working and put their hands on their heart. And I was looking around in shock because I was just, I just couldn't believe like just how strong that patriotic impulse was. It's an impulse or is it? And again, it comes back to your movie and the camp. We teach our kids at a young age and my daughter who's learning it now. And look, don't Colin Kaepernick me internet, but like it's... I I would challenge anyone to like listen to the words and just like pretend you are from India or China and listen to those words or, or you get upset about Duterte or Modi or Xi and these other countries and just like listen to the words and watch kids just, they're just taught to memorize it and to say it. And eventually it sinks in. To your point about the impulse, Dennis, I guess it's like, is it an impulse or is it like a taught or trained response? It is a taught and trained response, which is part of what the movie is trying to say. It is full on brainwashing. We are taught that we are a part of these nations and then we're taught to like swear an allegiance to them. And when you put it in this dystopian world, it suddenly feels very, which is another reason why sci-fi is so cool and effective, is it suddenly feels disturbing. And yet 
that is a pledge that Americans say every day. Every like day. I literally lifted yeah. those yeah. three things from out of some American text somewhere. I can't remember specifically, but it's like, and I remember also just reading, like if you read just like little parts of the Constitution yeah, or yeah, yeah. even, I mean, I went to the Tea Party tenants, like <laughs> as I was, and Trump mm -hmm. wasn't on the scene when I first started writing this. So I was using the Tea Party as the ideology of the jingos in the world. But it's like they are truly By the like, way, great choice of that word. The, great choice from a state. Yeah. That's, that's not yeah. pre slang, is it? Like Pakwi or Gora or Gaijin or? Like I was no, thinking, like it it's so close to gringo. Yeah, it's like a word I made up to like, it's obviously a comment on jingoism, right? And so that right. in this world that they had been sort of nicknamed the jingoes in the way that you would talk about, yeah, just certain factions. That's not people. what you guys call us, is it? Right. No, no, no. Okay. In, the, in the future, you will. In the future, you will. Got it. Yeah, but there's a couple little Cree, like, like at one point, Amanda Plummer said, the munchos have their own little brains. And munchos is actually a Cree word that means bug it's like the bugs have their huh. own little brains which was huh. also that thing about the mosquitoes can i, can I tell you a, i want to throw a story. company idea out at you i've had this idea for years it's my evil marketing like there's like a fad of like non-indian people wearing like sanskrit t-shirts or the the buff guy with the like chinese tattoo on his arm yeah. i want i want to find out in like in Cree muncho like write that down for me uh gora in hindi pakwi in mandarin and I literally want to sell like a line of shirts and market it <laughs> to people. <laughs> oh, it means hope. It means it means change. It means dream. <laughs> oh my god! I feel like all cultures that aren't white like love the joke plays on language, where it's like, oh yeah. In fact, that was a joke in Reservation Dogs when I was watching that this white guy who was friends with someone's mom was like, oh yeah, they they named me this thing, and it's like, oh, it means like lovely person. I can't remember what it was, but it's like, oh no, that word means toilet. Like, oh, because I think, but I think I'm gonna do it, Dennis. You know, I'm gonna do it. I'm totally gonna I watch. I mean, this and thing. I would also say that Cree is like a teasing culture through yeah, and yeah. through, and that when people are teased, there is always endearment in it. It's not insulting, but it also is what's a punch up in a way, like that thing, that yeah, notion of yeah. just like w marginalized people. Like there are certain things that we can have ownership over, and language is one of them, and we don't have to always bring everybody into everything. There are yeah. certain things that we should be allowed to keep for ourselves. Yeah. If we were to turn back time, Dennis, and have you visit yourself in your middle school or high school years, what is a piece of advice you'd give to yourself today? Oh, wow. I don't know. I mean, I feel like I didn't at that point really see a way forward for myself. Well, certainly not in film, but I also had a hard time naming some of the violence around me that is normalized in a context that it has a lot of racial tension in it. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if it's like advice, like in a career way, it's more just like that I would want someone to have a hand at my back and and maybe help me understand the things that I was navigating at the time that I that were causing me a lot of pain that I couldn't right. understand and couldn't name. And in some ways, I think as a culture, when we move forward conversations, we all learn collectively to name things that we couldn't in the past and that we couldn't understand in the past. And so that also is just like 
natural collective evolution as well. But I just think it's why it's so important to have these conversations so that we keep finding ways to unpack our experiences. Sure. Yeah. I think you're creating work and starting dialogues and inspiring a different way of thinking that that gives people, all of us, the ability to sort of see beyond what our situations might be and just think broader about these things. Thank you. <laughs> so we've covered a lot and I, I feel I am so inspired by you and I, I, I know Raman and I both really enjoyed your film. I think it's time now for Speed Round. Are you ready for Speed Round, Dennis? Okay, I'm ready. <laughs> Spoken like an indigenous like got a- mom. Like, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I feel yeah. like I've got a buzzer in front of me. Like, <laughs> we should what get do buzzers. Do? Like- we should, we should, yeah, we should send buzzers to all of our guests and just like... <laughs> Notoriously long-winded, so this yes. will be a challenge for me. Well, it's, 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 no one's ever ready for speed round, and get ready for another hour. <laughs> it's true. It's true. Sometimes speed round takes longer than the actual conversation. What is one thing about you that no one expects? Hmm. I don't know. I'm not sure that I really love watching curling to relax. Oh, you said that because you're Canadian, didn't you? Yeah. <laughs> I did, but even in Canada, it's only in certain regions. But like my dad's a big curler. And like when I'm at their house, like some curling tournament will be on and I'll just like put the recliner back and just like zen out on curling. That is amazing. <laughs> what is a uh, book or a movie that has characters that you relate to? Hmm. I mean, there's many, I think now, and I feel like there's also this incredible wave of indigenous literature but I just for some reason what popped into my head was the very first time I was watching a tv show which was like a mini series in the 90s in Saskatchewan and and I don't even think it was very good but there was um, it was called where the spirit lives and it was actually about residential schools and it was the lead was an incredible actor named Michelle St. John and I remember on screen, her mother or grandmother said to her, Danis or Donis, which is the Anishinaabe way of saying it, which means my daughter. And that's my name, Danis. It means my daughter in Cree. And so I remember hearing my name on television that I was watching for the first time and being like, oh, my God, that's me. That's what they mean. It's amazing. What is your favorite mom dish? Hmm. Oh, that's also a good question. And we talked about your dad, feel, so it can be a dad dish too. Yeah, it could be a dad dish. Yeah, I mean, we love the traditional food and especially because Toronto, we don't get it. So it's like our whole family freaks out whenever there's moose meat. How, moose how do you meat. call it moose meat? Yeah, yeah. what is? the the Okay, every community has their way and they're okay. going to claim that theirs is the best. But <laughs> in my dad's home community, it's like you fast fry it and then you pour water into it. This just creates a gravy and you cook it with onions. Mm-hmm. So that's the Cumberland House way of doing it. And I, I had it two nights ago and it was amazing. Yeah, you had wow. me at onions. Oh my God. <laughs> yeah, you had me at flash fry. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> What is your least favorite food? Oh my God, liver and onions, which is like the opposite of the spectrum of moose meat. And I was never a picky eater as a kid, but oh my God, how can you, it's just the worst. You just can't even swallow it. (laughs) And is it the texture that you don't like? Like, or or just the the, gaminess of it? The texture, but also the 
flavor. Like I eat yeah. a lot of rich gamey food. And so it's not even the, the strongness of the flavor. It's just like this weird powdery, like uh, mixed with the flavor. I just don't like it. Right. Right. Okay. That's acceptable. We accept that answer. <laughs> <laughs> Who is someone out there that you'd want to talk to on a podcast? Oh, goodness. Well, the grandmother of Indigenous cinema is regarded as the great Alanis Obamsawin. And mm-hmm. I've talked to her many times, but she has made over 40 movies in her career. And she just always shares new stories that I haven't heard before and always says exactly what you need to hear at exactly the moment you needed to hear it. Oh, she sounds lovely. She's the best. Dennis, what does being a modern minority mean to you? It means that we're on the precipice of a time and a conversation that was very much something that I was thinking about when I made Night Raiders, which is that power structures exist and that given who I am as an Indigenous person, that my existence is a threat to that power structure And that if we are moving into modern times, that we support values that value everybody and that we must topple the structures that want to continue to uphold white supremacy. 1000%. Dennis, I, (laughs) I just, your film moved me. I'm so happy and just proud that this was your first feature. And I I, I, it's, it's funny. I follow directors. I, I've stopped following like franchises and things, but like I follow writers and directors. And you're just, I'm just so glad we had the privilege to enjoy your statement. And just thank you for making it. And I can't wait for, I, I'm begging you to make more. Thank yes, you so much. Yes, please, please make more because you're a fantastic storyteller. It was an amazing film. Thank you so much to you both. I've really loved this conversation and I've really loved all of your questions. So it's just been super great to be here. And that's our show. Like what you heard? Please subscribe, leave a review, and a five-star rating on your favorite podcasting platform. Now more than ever, people need to be hearing these stories. Please share our show with a friend or three. Want to learn more or got something to share? Visit modmypod.com or email us, hi mom, at modmypod.com. You can also follow us on Instagram and Twitter at modminpod. We'd love to hear from you. That's it for now. I've been Raman Segel. And I'm still Sharon Lee Tony. Remember, we're all modern minorities out there. We'll talk to you soon. All right, but I actually have some really, really big podcast news. Oh my God. Oh my God. Did you happen to get Aquafina to be on our show? No, Sharon. It's even better than that. Better than Aquafina. Are we are we now Crooked Media's newest podcast about race and gender? Oh, okay, okay. Lower your expectations. <laughs> <laughs> it's Dan, if you're listening. <laughs> but no, it is not that big. Dude, you're killing me. Out with it already. What is it? We got merch. We got merch? Oh my god. I know, I know right? All right? Pretty awesome. Well, did we finally get the official Modern Minorities t-shirt? Come on, do something. Say something better than t-shirt. <laughs> What's cooler than a t-shirt? Did we finally get the Modern Minorities self-heating coffee tumbler? <laughs> uh, no. 
Is it a really awesome sweatshirt? No. Better, Sharon. We got stickers. Um, stickers, Roman? Come on! That's what all the cool kids have got on their laptops and their skateboards. Dude, no. Who wants a sticker with our faces on it? Our very attractive and jolly faces, Sharon. Right, but I'm not putting that on my laptop. <laughs> all right, all right. Riddle me this, old chum. How do you feel about Prince, Bruce Lee, RBG, the Frida Kahlo? Oh, they're awesome guests who we would love to have on our show, except they're no longer with us. Yeah, but what's the next best thing? <laughs> I get it. Now you're talking. So how do I get me some of these sweet stickers? Easy peasy. Hit modmypod.com slash merch. M-E-R-C-H. Amazing. You know me. I'm going to be ordering that right now. Um, Ramen? Uh, yeah. It says these stickers are like 25 bucks. What are they made of? Gold? No, 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 no. This, this is on purpose. The price is on purpose. Wait, wait, what? You're, you're supposed to leave the business decisions to me. So what did you do here? <laughs> no, no, no. See, Sharon, we don't actually want anyone to buy these stickers. We want to give them away. Okay, listen, I've known you for a long time. You're a great professional, but do you know how business works? Like, have you been snacking on Janine's edibles again? No, 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 no. Hear me out. Well, not you, Sharon, but you, our favorite listener to Modern Minorities. I'm, I'm talking to you, Laura, Buck, and both of our respective sisters. <laughs> right, you're talking to them, but also to the other people that are not related to us. People who, for some reason, enjoy loyally listening each week to Modern Minorities. Yeah, exactly. I'm talking to them. I mean, I'm talking to you. We need your help. Talk to you, the listener. We need your help to make this podcast, which we know you love, reach more people see we want you our loyal modern minorities listener one might say friend of the pod (laughs) yes yes that we want you to email 10 of your friends in one mass email why they have to listen to and subscribe and subscribe to modern minorities in one beautifully written email we need you to tell 10 of your besties why you love our podcast Maybe mention two or three of your favorite episodes. Like the one with Peggy and Marcha, or the one with Margaret Cho. Ooh, or maybe Mayor Svante Myrick, writer Mira Jacob, or March co-creator Andrew Iden. But be sure to copy mom at modmypod.com on your email. Exactly. We'll even give you some sample language that you can send to your besties about why they should listen to our podcast. And if you do us this one little but big favor, it would make a big difference. And we'll send you, our favorite listener, your very own set of super exclusive first edition Modern Minority stickers for free. You can totally do that. Dude, that's what the internet is made for. Giving away free stuff for earned media mentions. Damn straight. So check out our sweet, sweet stickers and how you can get them for free at modmypod.com slash merch, M-E-R-C-H. The secret is out. The floodgates have opened, but act fast, supplies are limited, and also my daughter can only stuff so many envelopes. Oh, you're totally setting up an Asian sweatshop in your kitchen, aren't you? Hey man, she's got to earn her keep, and so do you, our loyal listeners. Start sharing. <laughs> Remember, the only way you can get those stickers is to email 10 of your friends in one mass email. None of this BCC crap, so make sure we can see that you've sent them to 10 people. And be sure to copy hi mom at modmypod.com. 
Well, you know, technically, Sharon, they could just fork over some money for the stickers. What would we even use that money for? Something diabolical. You're thinking more merch, aren't you? T-shirts, Sharon. T-shirts. A girl can dream, Roman. All right, all right. So remember, you, listener, email to any of your friends. Friends. Email to any of your friends <laughs> and tell them why you love and they should listen to Modern Minorities. And we will totally hook you up with some sweet, sweet Modern Minority stickers with some rad Modern Minority faces. It's like the perfect holiday present that you never knew you actually wanted until now. Offer valid while supplies last. For sure. They are awesome, trust me. And they're a great way for you to get some rad merch and support your favorite podcast. Remember, visit modmypod.com slash merch for all the deets. Did you just say deets? What are you, like 23? <laughs> I will confirm or <laughs> deny that. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.